Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay episode with Jamie Bartlett. Recorded back in 2019, he is the best-selling author of multiple books including The Dark Net and People vs Tech. In this episode, we're discussing his podcast, The Missing Crypto Queen, a BBC Sounds podcast described by The Telegraph as the most gripping podcast since Serial. The podcast uncovers the mysterious story of Dr. Ruja Ignatova, who persuaded millions to join her financial revolution, a new cryptocurrency called OneCoin, that turned out to be a huge scam. Jamie and Georgia Cat made the podcast, and they tried to track her down, and it's a story of greed and deceit, but it's also just so addictive listening to it and their storytelling is brilliant. Definitely go and listen if you haven't already. And very excitingly, Jamie has recently revealed that he's written a book too called The Missing Crypto Queen and it's released this month in June 2022. So that's definitely one to pre-order. So I hope you enjoy re-listening to this or listening to it for the first time. Here is Jamie Bartlett. The Missing Crypto Queen is just, I mean, Enemy called it the most gripping podcast of 2019, which I agree with. And I just wanted more. And I wanted to just talk to you more and find out how it's all been, because what a ride. I still can't believe it. You know, when we first put this story together, well, you know how it goes, like you've got to go inside the BBC, you talk to people and you say, you know, this is the outline and this is, you know, it's because the media people need to do something and the publicity people need to. And one of them said, OK, brilliant. Yeah. So who wrote this drama? And we said, it's not. A drama. It's a true story. It sounds fictional almost. When yeah. I when you listen, you think, and it happened to us, and we were in the middle of it. It's like, I can't believe this has happened. It's such a perfect, weird story. But I wanted to ask you about making it because I've listened to podcasts before that have kind of solved some sort of crime or, or trying to, but this one felt different because it felt very I know that you did a lot of prep and you obviously recorded a lot beforehand but it was like kind of evolving in real time what was that like right well I've just for anyone who hasn't heard it I suppose I'll just summarize it because that's important in terms of knowing how we made it so weirdly enough the producer Georgia who pops up all the way through she's great by the way total collaboration me and her are like 100% well 50 50% each on this total joint work the presenters get all the credit always for these things but the producers well you maybe know as well they Mm -hmm. do so much work so she gets approached about a year ago by a friend of a friend who says i've heard about this amazing new cryptocurrency that's like bitcoin but it's going to be bigger than bitcoin it's called one coin and if you invest get in now early and you're going to make a fortune you know how everyone made money on bitcoin and you're sad you missed out well this is the next one so get in now and she's thinking this is interesting so she starts looking into it a bit she realises that the founder, Dr. Ruja Ignatova, has been missing for 18 months at that time and thinks it's unusual for an amazing company to have a missing founder. And she digs a bit deeper and thinks something's weird about this. Phones me up. We go out for breakfast. We start talking about it because I've written a lot about cryptocurrencies and the internet with some of my other books. The more we look into it, the more we think this is the weirdest story we've ever seen. And I say at the start of episode one, this is basically the strangest thing I've ever worked on. And I wrote a book about the dark net, you know, with all the weird things going on online. Essentially, what it is, is a woman comes up in 2014, Ruja Ignatova says, I've got this new cryptocurrency. It's called OneCoin. It's going to change the world. Invest now and you'll become rich. Grows enormously. Over a million people invest and they invest well over 4 billion euros. This is like um, Austin Powers. 4 billion (laughs) euros with my little pinky finger. 
And it's growing and growing and growing all over the world, 175 countries. And then in 2017, Dr. Ruja Ignatova, the genius founder, vanishes into thin air and no one's seen her since. I mean, already that sounds like the strangest story you've ever heard, but it gets weirder. It really does. And so we set out to find her and work out how she pulled off this incredibly elaborate scam. And it took us months of work. But we had this idea that as soon as we put the first episode out, people are going to start getting in touch. We're going to get new leads. We're going to get new ideas. So we left episodes six and seven. So it's eight episodes weekly. But we left six and seven kind of open to see what would come back, what would happen, which is quite a risky thing to do. But we were so confident that we would get new leads from people listening in. And we just got overwhelmed with leads and ideas. And we were working. So it sounds like you're on a journey in the... You know, some podcasts, they make all eight or make all 12 or whatever, and then they just release them weekly, but they're all finished. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case. We were working up until the minute before we had to publish it because we were still changing the story as we went. People were like refreshing your Twitter feed, like, when are you posting (laughs) it? People started actually getting annoyed at me and I was like, (laughs) I am working as hard as I can. You don't understand. So was it literally a case of... Okay, we're getting on a plane now. Yes. Wow. So we delayed episode seven because of a couple of leads, things we'd researched, and we were trying to find out what's... We felt like we had to sort of make a call about what city we thought she was in and where we thought she was. We were investigating a lot of other things that didn't come up in the podcast, really. Dubai was a strong lead, Ukraine, Russia, Montenegro, Greek islands, wow. all lots of different places. And But in the end, we sort of settled on Frankfurt. I can say it, can't I? I'm yeah. Frankfurt. The problem was we didn't want her to know. So if we'd have said at the end of six, we're going to Frankfurt next week, she might have been there and disappeared. So we thought we can't tell anyone where we're going until after we've got back from being there. How funny, because (laughs) yeah, these people might have been listening. Yes, I have been told that she's she's listening and because the theme music is about her. We got it commissioned by yeah, lovely the Bulgarian, yeah. London Bulgarian choir. It's about her, which we kind of thought was a little message to her. And I've been speaking to people who said she will be listening to this. And what's more, she'll be loving it. That There's a podcast about her. She'll be loving all the attention. How weird is it, can I just say, that she's such a scammer and she's kind of ruined quite a lot of people's lives. And she's she's not like a, a good person in terms of what she's done. But she's fascinating. And, and what is it about that? Like, I kind of want to meet her. I'd love to meet her. I don't know what I'd say if I... I met her. You know that. Kitty. We're all rooting for you to meet her. <laughs> Some people were saying, what question would you ask this woman? I mean, so she was born in Bulgaria. Age of 10, she moves to Germany. Through school, she becomes this incredible high flyer. The teachers call her an Überflieger. The teacher said she's the smartest student she's ever had. She gets a degree from Oxford. She gets a PhD from Constance University, both in law. And I phoned up those universities thinking, yeah, yeah, she's a scammer. She doesn't have a degree. And Oxford University said, no, yeah, she has a master's degree from here, St Hilda's College. I was like, oh, wow. She really is an incredibly clever. clever woman. And she works in finance and law. And then she starts up this new cryptocurrency, OneCoin. And she's just a magnetic character. But then supervillains are, aren't they? I mean, they are interesting, charismatic intelligent. She's got a softer side as well, I think. And how carefully manicured she is, because everything's about appearance, how she looks, how she presents herself. And so she became, for me and Georgia, just total obsession. I mean, weekends, we're just online watching YouTube videos of her from 2014. 
and then phoning each other up and saying, have you seen this one? Have you seen that one? I think what was exciting about the story for us is, now I don't know what you felt when you first saw it being advertised, but a lot of people thought this called the missing crypto queen and they thought, oh, cryptocurrency. So boring. I'm not interested in any of that. Did you have that feeling? I'm fascinated in all of that. You bring these topics that no one really knows much about to the mainstream. You break it down. The bit when you are trying to explain it to your mum, to me, was such a good bit in it because, you know, you're just saying like, guys, we kind of all need to know a little bit more about tech than we do. Yeah, here was the problem that we had. So we get to episode two and we realised to tell the story, which is that they created a cryptocurrency that didn't have this particular type of database that all real cryptocurrencies have called a blockchain, which is an ad-only, irreversible, distributed ledger. I mean, and see, already it's like I'm going to sleep even saying those words. (laughs) But to understand how they pretended to have one of those things but didn't is really important to the story. So we get to episode too and we think and I'm thinking everyone's going to turn off when I spend three minutes trying to describe a blockchain to people you do it so well, well though uh, I didn't my, really know what it was really and then I did you, well, there you, you go you broke it down we well, see my, my idea was if I because my mum hates technology like she hates it but she's really she's so smart and she has the amazing questions about that are really the basic questions that everyone should ask and when people ask you the real like a small child almost not sorry mum for the answer but like asking you the real basics well why is it like that? Like when she said, can you use it in Tesco's? Yeah. That's the question that that's we all want to know. That's the question that everyone has. So that's what I thought. I thought if I tried to explain it to my mum, firstly, it's a clever way of forcing me to explain it as clearly as I possibly can. Secondly, people listening will be quite interested to know how my mum reacts. And she just says at the end of my really, I spent hours on this description. And I said, so does that make sense? And she just says, no. In the <laughs> no, not deflating really. <laughs> way that your mum, only your mum can just take you down. And she even says, I think you need to try again, Jamie. <laughs> I was like, oh. So, but I knew that what that would do, or I hoped that people listening wouldn't feel bad if they didn't understand it either, because they'd think, because that's the thing with all this technology, a lot of it's emperor's new clothes and people don't want to admit they don't understand it. So everyone nods along like, oh yeah, yeah, I get it. Oh, me too. Mm. But you don't. And it's okay if you don't, you just need to understand some really basic things about it. So, and I knew that she would ask the questions that a listener would have, because I didn't want this to be a podcast for crypto people, because mm-hmm. that's the problem. The reason ordinary people are getting scammed like this is because they don't understand the basics and all the language is built for other technologists yeah so she was brilliant yeah she became a little celebrity really messaging me like your mum needs a show <laughs> i love it's a really good idea for a podcast actually explain you things mom. to you yeah like yeah. explain all that brexit yeah you know all these complicated things explaining it to someone that doesn't understand it very well forces you to expose your own ignorance in a way because you realize there's often gaps in your own knowledge that you cover up and everyone else thinks you know because you're the technology writer but I know I have so many things I've written about that I don't fully understand mm. and I kind of ignore the difficult areas yeah. you ask your mum you explain it to your mum and she will find your weakness and force you to explain it so so true yeah it's true that I think the podcast the fact that so amazing that it's got out there in such a mainstream way like you say it's not just for like crypto geeks I mean it's had like a million listeners and it's like you know when you make a payment on like a NatWest app and it's like just make sure this isn't a scam Mm. before you send this Mm. money and it's Mm. like this podcast is almost a reminder of like we all just need to maybe double check things but back to some of your previous work because it kind of all links up doesn't it like the books that you've written about the dark web and radicals what was so interesting to me is this wasn't it's not really a podcast necessarily about cryptocurrencies more so about community people didn't want it to be fake because they felt part of something and is that a strand that goes across a lot of your work yeah what you found yeah i think all of my work has always tried to be about how humans 
interact with technology and how it changes your way of thinking and behaving and what it does to your daily life and not so much about the specifics of the tech itself. One of the things I've always found about technology stories is when you really go into detail in how people are behaving online and what they're doing, it's a bit like when you look at a soil. Standing up looking down at a patch of soil, you just see a bit of mud and a bit of grass. But if you go pick it up and look at it closely, there's a whole world in there of little insects crawling around. And it's like, wow, there's a universe here I didn't even notice from up there. And every online community, and I've spent a lot of time in self-harm forums and neo-Nazi forums, trolling communities, and now with this crypto scam, and every single time, without exception, it's not how I imagined it to be. There's facets to it. There's human dilemmas. All the things that you think are obviously good and evil aren't. And there's mm. all this grey area and confusing moral choices people have. And I knew with this, it would be the same. It would be a human story where you think it's obvious who's the goody and the baddie in this Crypto Queen mm. podcast. But you suddenly realise that it's not as simple as that because there are people who have bought into this dream of this new cryptocurrency. And then they've told their friends and family about it. And they've inadvertently scammed their nearest and dearest. Yeah. And then you're thinking, who's innocent here? Who's scamming who here? Who's, yeah. I mean, it worked like a pyramid selling scheme where you'd sell the cryptocurrency to other people and you'd get a commission, which is why it spread really quickly, like old fashioned pyramid mm. selling. But what that basically did was create this moral dilemma where even the scammers at the top making lots of money were buying millions of one coin and they thought they were billionaires. They were living in a bubble. They didn't know what was going. It was so bizarre. And the people that I thought were true victims, pure victims, I realised they were getting commissions selling it to other people as well. So they're not totally innocent. And no. the, the whole thing about a lot of the technology we have and how it's changing our lives is it's creating weird moral dilemmas for all of us every day where it's not quite clear what to do and who's right and who's wrong. And this kind of summed a lot of that up for me. So interesting because listening to Jen from yes, Scotland, yes. I like the sound of her as a human being that I believe has valid emotions about it, but I couldn't help but think you fell for this like you yeah. didn't I don't know like it sounds hard well, you're being greedy you're being greedy you were told put a hundred dollars in and make a thousand and you put all this money in it do you deserve what you get yeah and that was just like something that I had to grapple with as well like my judgments but we do that on purpose I think with this podcast and with with all my work I've always tried to force people to be a bit unsure about where their loyalties lie with characters. You know, even when I've done work with neo-Nazi groups, there's often a sort of human element to some of their personal stories that make you think, oh, I hate what they're saying. I kind of feel sorry about what's happened to them in their life. And now I'm wondering, is it as clear cut? Well, how do they get to where they got to? I need to understand that too. And a lot of the stories that I find most interesting are ones where I try not to tell the listener or the reader what they should think about someone, but just say, make your mind up about it. Mm -hmm. This is how it is for them for figure it out yourself. So we tried to present that rounded view of these investors, you know. So Jen McAdam, she's kind of presented as a pure victim in episodes two and three, and she put this money in and she, her dad's invest inheritance mm, money yeah. and she thought she was going to save, you know, change her life. And But then by episode five, we'd go back to her and say, hang on, you were making commissions on selling it to other people too, weren't you? And just because we felt like you had to see that side of it too. Totally. The, the thing about her though, why I think in the end she is a victim more than anything is that as soon as she really understood that this was a scam, she 
immediately stopped and immediately started trying to warn everyone she could. She spoke publicly. She tried to call people out. She tried to warn people. She went to the authorities. She was getting death threats and she carried on. So it's like, okay, you made a mistake, but I can't consider you to be a scammer when you've done mm. all this. It costs to yourself. And there are other people who I think in their heart knew this was a scam, but preferred to look the other way mm. and didn't check because they didn't want to know the truth because they were making money. And it's not with these pyramid selling schemes. It's never a case of just black and white who's wrong and who's right you have like a sliding scale of guilt you know and she's near the bottom of that scale Mm. and there are others that are way further up yeah and i and people you know good people can make mistakes and and we're none of us are perfect and actually if we rectify something you don't have to be cancelled forever just from one thing Do you think that we are just like getting more and more divided and should all of us to a certain extent try and talk to people we don't agree with more? Yeah, and I know it's almost become a trope now to say you've got to get out there, get out of your Mm. bubble, talk to people. And people online, and I spend a lot of time studying this as well, will say that the problem is we're, we're all trapped in our own little echo chamber and filter bubble and we hear the same thing over and over again. I don't think that's actually true at all. I think when we go online, I don't know about you, but I feel like I constantly see opposing opinions, things I disagree with, probably more than the things I agree with. It comes up in your feed randomly, you know, because it's often people who you agree with quote tweeting or sharing things they disagree with and saying how terrible they are. Mm. So you're seeing the opposing side constantly. I don't think the problem is that. I think the problem is we don't engage fully with our opponents. And, and, and the design of the internet is such that it makes it very, very hard to fully, emotionally, thoughtfully engage with opposing views. There's a lot of quite worrying research out there that even though the liberals among us like to say, put two people in a room with different views, you talk it out and you come to a conclusion, you know, you you were both half right. And No, what the evidence shows is that you put two people together who disagree and they'll argue for half an hour and walk away as convinced that they were right and the other side was wrong. Only very careful certain conditions does arguing with other people help you arrive at a truth and understanding? And internet communication is not designed around that principle. It's designed around butting mm. heads with each other. So I think we're getting more divided, not because we only see our own side, but because we see caricatures of the other side. Someone the other night was telling me that they had read about uh, someone who was so, so left, like extreme, extreme left, and then like kind of got radicalised into an (laughs) alt-right. Right. (laughs) And how they're all like, it's all one side of a coin almost. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely true. I mean, because that's partly just a mindset of being a sort of extreme, dogmatic, radical. But I think that there's an old internet word, it's expression or word, it's it's called nut picking, which is the way you try to undermine your opponents online is to take the most extreme and absurd position of your opponents and then share that as proof of how your opponents act and think. I think all of us are much, we agree on a lot more and we'd find much more in common, but we caricature the, the left and the right and the left are mad, so Marxist, communists want to do this and the right are fascists and they don't care about X, Y and Z. It's that I think is what's driving us apart. And the answer, it has to be more face-to-face communication. It has to be getting out there. And then the question becomes whose responsibility is it? And I think it's responsibility on, I'll be honest, sort of quite wealthy, well-off liberals in London, people like us basically. It's our responsibility because we've got all the advantages in life to be able to do that. And I think Mm. too often we don't. We just sneer and point fingers at other people. 
I agree. There's a real privilege behind like being liberal and like if you don't have immediate situations in your life that you need to fight those fires. It's funny actually. I tweeted yesterday a quote from Phoebe Waller Bridge, who I think is the most inoffensive person in the world right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just writing yeah. some funny TV. Yeah. She wrote in a Vogue piece. She was quoted saying, "When something's a little bit too PC." I saw that. I like to shake it up a bit or I like to be a rebel. And I just got comments going, well, she's Trump then. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Wow, we're really really like not, we're really not up for nuance, are we? And that's one of the threads that takes through in all my work, this desire to refine the grey area, the things that are a bit ambiguous, where you're not totally sure, you know, you're a bit uncomfortable even to work out how you think about things because there's all this grey area and difficulty, which everyone agrees with in principle. When you say it in principle, everyone says, oh yeah, of course, yeah, definitely. When the rubber hits the road with things, it doesn't happen and everyone screams at each other because often it's easier as well. Yeah. It's easier for, for someone like her. It's, it's, it's always going to be easier to say nothing offensive or nothing difficult or awkward because you don't need the hassle of it. Mm-hmm. But society only ever moves on with people that are troublemakers. And unfortunately, if you want to live in a society where you have liberal ideas and radical ideas, some of them have to be ones you don't agree with just to get the good ones that you do agree with out there too. Yeah. Otherwise, nothing ever changes. And so if we want to live in a society, and I think we've got big societal problems coming down the line, we need to be encouraging radical thoughts, different thoughts, welcoming that. And a liberal is supposed to encourage people to think differently and to be outspoken. And I feel like liberal sometimes does the opposite, mm-hmm. shut it down, mm-hmm. stop it. and Like you know, the no platforming. Yeah. rule yeah. is always an interesting one to me because I know Malcolm Gladwell gets a lot of stick because he believes that a New York Times conference should invite like Steve Bannon to talk yeah. because he exists and he has a platform, unfortunately. Yeah, see, I think with, with the platform question, the key thing, a, a proper liberal is supposed to find devil's advocates with whom they disagree. And sharing a platform with someone, in my opinion, means the opposite sometimes of agreeing with them. It means I need to publicly disagree with you and demonstrate to people why you're wrong on a public stage where people can see why your views need to be tested and tested and tested so people can see the weakness in them. Most important thing of all, I think, is for both sides to realise there are reasonable arguments in favour of no platforming. Of course, I get them. I understand them. I listen to them. I read them carefully about giving a voice to people that don't really deserve those, you know, and how mm-hmm. it can normalise certain ideas. And I get that as well. But I also think that the pro-free speech liberal argument on platforms is important. And if both sides could see, again, you do have a point. I get you. Your argument is also a legitimate one. And I think that's, again, it's that that nuance and understanding that our, your opponents might have a point sometimes about things is what we're missing. And I, yeah. I do see that as a, an old human problem, an old human pattern of behaviour, but that's been turbocharged by how we communicate now. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not new, these problems, but the internet exacerbates and in a way sort of monetizes very old, familiar human weaknesses. Yeah. I've just had a, a thought then that I think that's why I've enjoyed your podcast so much is because even though, of course, you and Georgia think that what Dr. Has done is not good in terms of it's really oh, it's terrible, terrible. Yeah, terrible. But, but you're interviewing people with a sense of empathy. I don't know. You're quite open-minded. I think I feel like for a listener, what what I hope to do is because we're interviewing some very difficult people. You know, a pastor, a pastor who has been recruiting people in his congregation. That bit, you guys got angry. <laughs> I got angry at that. Yeah, got, yeah I got yeah. quite and angry sh- about that. Yeah, you can tell. I can tell. Yeah. And Georgia um, was really Georgia angry. Georgia was as really well. angry. I mean, but, it's jobless. But, but speaking to other recruiters and speaking to other 
people that have been promoting it. And I felt like I could go in there and just shout at someone and show the listener, look at me, Jamie Barlett, I'm the presenter, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. What are you going to get out of that as a listener? Surely you want me to get their story out so you can see what they're thinking and how they're behaving. And I feel like almost no matter who it is, if you're empathetic and just asking those questions like, yeah, but don't you think rather than pointing a finger, you'll actually get more so the listener can really understand it. It's not being easy on them. It's being harder on them in a way because it's if you scream and shout at someone, what's that saying? Give someone enough rope to hang them. So like, let them explain their position and you can expose it better the more information exactly. you can get out of Totally. People. It's funny because I think in this, at the moment, broadcasters are meant to like take a political stance, aren't they? Or, or at least say who they vote for or I don't know. I feel like it might be good to have more neutral interviewers. Yeah, and and I've, I'm getting a bit bored of the kind of almost shock jock style. You're listening to this show because the presenter shares your view and is going to take everyone down. What's the point of that? Yeah, so so we, we I definitely went in there with a very sort of open mind. I mean, not with Rouja herself. I mean, but but even with Rouja, the mastermind genius behind it all, there's also open that possibility that she never intended for it to be so big. That she started what she thought was a small scam and it ran out of her control and she got trapped by the success basically mm-hmm. what i think's happened here she built what she thought was going to be quite a small scam and it was so perfect and almost beautifully done she picked every weak point in society and figured out how to do it that it got so big she couldn't turn it around i even think she might have thought at one point like a lot of scammers bernie madoff is the same they think they can go legit they think they'll be able to turn the ship around and maybe I can actually turn this into a real company and I just need a bit more time and I need a bit more time. And But the scam she designed was so perfect for the 2010s mm. that it got so big that she became trapped by it. And that was one of the reasons she had to disappear. Even that's a bit more nuanced, I think, than just saying the woman's evil. Yes. And she wanted to scam as many millions as she could. Yes. But it's not defending her, but it's just no, trying to understand, it's just understanding, like, how it's it got there. More of the story. Yeah. Because on Wikipedia, it says OneCoin is a Ponzi scheme. Yes. Like, it's very, very clear that this is a scam now. But they still operate, don't they? Yes, that's right. Well, they still operate. And as you will have seen in the podcast throughout, they deny that they're a scam, that they have a legitimate block chain, that they are a real currency, that they're going to be able to, you know, the the idea that the thing they were selling to people was buy these one coin, they're like Bitcoin, and you have them in your account. And one day soon, well, they keep going up in value over the time you hold them. So they start off at $5 and then they're 10 and then next year they're 50 and so on. And then one day soon, a kind of marketplace will open where you can sell them for that price. So you'll get all the real money back. And they're still saying that that's going to happen and the money's going to come. I mean, I think we've quite carefully demonstrated why that's not the case. Yeah. But they and still are operating. Yeah, they are still operating. And is it today. because they're in a they're in a country where the like legal system isn't well, the like int- it couldn't happen here, right? Like if a scam of this wow. of this size was here? I think if the head office was in London, you might have seen that the authorities here would have been tougher on it. But definitely because the head office was in Bulgaria and they had it in different places for a while. It was in a place where, for example, the UK authorities couldn't really do much and dare I say the Bulgarian authorities aren't quite as 
strict on these things. And they, That's they didn't, scary. Within Bulgaria, they didn't really do much recruiting. So Bulgarian citizens weren't so affected directly. So the authorities, I think, probably left them alone a bit more. But the thing about international money and I suppose the internet now is a scammer in Bulgaria or wherever can sell things to a person in Scotland or Uganda just as easily as they can to their own neighbour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the British police can't shut down an office in Bulgaria. And that's the problem. It's like the internet has no barriers yeah. or boundaries or walls. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is the same, exactly the same problem with all the hacking stories you read about. Oh, all these millions of, you know, your, you've had your home hacked into or your bank account hacked into by someone in Russia. Well, what's the UK police going to do about that? Nothing. So it's the same basic problem. The interconnectivity now has meant that it's very hard for the sort of domestic, geographically based law enforcement to do anything about it, mm. which is why in the end it's left to the Americans. They're the only ones really who can have the weight to do anything. And they did arrest the brother. And right, the brother yeah, so the yeah. brother's is currently testifying in the literally as we speak now, he is in a courtroom testifying for the government against another individual. He's basically reached an agreement with the US authorities. So the story's unfolding still oh as, we, as we speak. My mind is blown. I just, I've learned so much. I'm just like, oh, I've got two more quick questions. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I was just thinking of you guys when you're making it and how much this has blown up. Are you, as a journalist, worried? Like, are people sending you weird emails? You know, the thing is, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days. A lot of people, and especially, it's been in the news a lot, women MPs especially getting a lot of death threats online and, and violence and sexual violence. It's something that a lot of other people that don't receive it just bat away and say, oh, you know, block them, ignore it, get over it. They're just mouthing off. And that is one of those things that you don't understand how destructive it can be in your life until you've had it. Mm. You know, how paranoid it makes you and you're looking over your shoulder and you, who's following me and do people know where I live? And these suddenly paranoia can destroy your life. And so I, I used to actually be someone, I reckon, four or five years ago, I was one of those people that used to say, oh, get over it, you know, grow thicker skin. And I think now I realise that's not fair. You can't understand what paranoia does to you. And because we kept hearing throughout the podcast and we got the sort of high-risk team at the BBC advising us to do certain things and be careful yeah. with what you say and where you are and all that stuff. Even that in itself is weird because the minute they give you the advice about things you should do for your safety, you're thinking, oh, right, so I need to, so I should be worried then, should I? And then as we're making the podcast, as you've heard, mysterious people are involved, you know, mafia, organised crime, who's really behind it, talking about an international scam worth billions of dollars, shady people get involved when it's that size. And, and the weird thing was, yeah, the night episode one came out, someone at three in the morning was bashing on my front door and shouting and screaming. And I was like, I don't believe what's happened. It was a mistaken identity, but it really shook me up. Wasn't it just some drunk guy with the wrong address? Yeah, basically. And I I couldn't believe it. And, and, you know, then you're sort of worried about where you're going to be. And so nothing really too serious. Uh, You know what I got? This is true of so many stories. And I think people that listen in and watch the news don't understand this. Anytime a big organisation like the BBC turns up, I've got the support behind me of all these people and lawyers and stuff like that, you know, and you can feel a bit protected. For three years before we did anything on this, there was like handfuls of bloggers, random people who'd invested, who started trying to call this out. No one listened to them and they were just getting abuse. They were getting legal letters. They were getting death threats and they carried on. And I get the credit like, oh, you're so brave. Rubbish. It's easy for me. These guys, Mm. some of whom are in that show, they're the ones that were brave because they were doing it when it was just them. And they had the same, you know, all these threats they had. And a lot of big stories you see, the presenters get all this credit, but there's other people behind the scenes that were doing it. And I've been thinking about how 
that is a consequence of what happens when local journalism and journalism more generally stops being able to investigate things. Mm. Everything's connected here. So local newspapers and others who've got lawyers can't investigate big stories anymore because they haven't got any money. Mm. One of the reasons is the internet, but there's other reasons too. What happens then is that ordinary citizens go online and have to blog about it to try to warn people and then ordinary citizen gets a scary looking legal letter and they don't know what to do and it's not fair but that is a consequence of our media being defanged and not Mm. having the resources and I saw it with these guys you know random people who've you know, who are getting scary legal letters. I mean, that's terrifying. Yes, and it's really scary. It's just history repeating itself of like, let's just silence people silence who, who are speaking truth to power. Yeah, because they know that ordinary people will get a legal letter and they'll be so scared. Yeah. I mean, they picked on a Glaswegian and so they picked on the wrong person with Jen, who's like <laughs> yes. not interested in being quiet at all. Yes, love that. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, you, it's so fascinating. And just like everything before the podcast that you've made as well, I could speak to you for hours. But my last question oh, yeah. is Uh-oh. obviously what is happening now. Right. Spoiler alert. So anyone who hasn't heard the end, okay, switch off. Switch yeah. off. We never thought we were going to get close to finding her, I'll be honest with you. Because it's like this woman's been missing for two years. The FBI's looking for her. What chance have me and Georgia got of finding this woman? It's impossible. You your matching tangle tees. Yeah. And, and <laughs> <laughs> we do both have like very well long hair and we both use the same hairbrush, which is embarrassing. But, and people think we've got a huge team behind us and we don't. It's us two. That's it. So we I, love, never th- I love that though. There's something about that, just you two just being like... You know what? It helps because if you've got like 10 people and it all gets confusing and you can't suddenly go somewhere and because there's a, someone's telling you. To, so it's really good that there's only two of us. But it meant that we never really thought we'd have much of a chance. But we because we became so obsessed and we were working on it 14 hours a day, every day, we ended up, I think, finding things out that people hadn't seen before, you know, and just thinking about a missing person. You know, what do you do? Will you go back before they went? before they start like their childhood and what are their behaviours and there are other ways of finding people. People are creatures of comfort and we you know we investigate we look talk to a private investigator who gave us advice of what he all things that let's be honest the FBI probably can't be bothered to do because she's one woman of a hundred they're looking for. So we actually ended up getting closer than we thought, but which was weird because we'd always planned that the final episode would be in Uganda. The minute we got back from Uganda, where we spent a week there with people in villages, the most remote place I've ever been in my life where people had all invested in one coin. I mean, can you believe it? Like something travelling just that far, yeah. Literally sold their goats to invest in one coin. And as soon as we got back from that trip, we thought this has to be the end because this is the real cost of it to people. It almost doesn't matter where she is. She's unleashed this idea that's just spiralled about invest in a cryptocurrency, you'll become rich beyond your wildest dreams and it'll be amazing and that's more important than her. We always plan that to be the end, partly I suppose because we don't... You know, Did you ever listen to Serial? Yeah. The kind of like peters out and yeah, don't really I know what happens. Yeah, I didn't and, listen to the end. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's all like, well, it's not... So we thought that's a risk when you're making something like this as well. So we thought it's going to be important for people to finish on a very emotional, important part of the story, which is the victims in the furthest corners of the earth. But then we get closer to her than we expect to and think we know even what city she's in, Frankfurt. And we go there in episode seven and we're like, well, wow, maybe we should have finished on Frankfurt because we're actually kind of getting somewhere here. We really thought we might find her, which was weird because I don't know how we thought we were actually going to like, what, she's just walking down the street, is she? I don't know. It ended literally, we're not making this up. We didn't pay someone to do this. A very trusted person phoned us up five days before it went out and said, you were right. She either is 
or was in Frankfurt. She has a house there. She spends a lot of time there. You just got to keep going. You are going to find her. You're really, really, really close. And that wasn't recorded months ago and then put in at the end for that, effect. That it, happened five days before the final episode. And we were like, oh my God. What are we going to do? Yeah. So I'll be honest with you, at this point, what day is it? Friday. I still don't quite know what we're going to do next. A lot of people have said you cannot stop where you've left it. You have to carry on. Yeah, I can't say too much more, <laughs> but obviously, well, let's just say like I saw Georgia today at the BBC. That gets us all excited <laughs> about what could be. So we'll leave this on a cliffhanger. 